in the last nine, 10 years, I had many exposure sessions with clients holding knives, you know, on my neck, on my arm, on my leg, holding hammers. I have clients sitting, you know, if they have these aggressive obsessions uh, towards their children, you know, in, in that session, we have the kids sitting next to my client. And on the other side, we have a knife. I have couples sitting with a knife between them. So it is too much wow. exposure. It's a very intense work. I want to be my current self from this point forward. I want to learn how to play piano. Working with human beings. Drinking wine in the middle of the day. I want to be a fire truck driver. I'm going to be the next greatest painter. Just kind of work with kids, getting them ahead in life. I want to be a welder. I want to be a beach bum. I want to be a baseball player. Brewmaster. A winemaker. Professional snuggler. Let me mention those sweet, hot lavender baths and writing in the evening. What's up, everybody? I'm Blake Fletcher, and this is the Half Hour Intern Podcast, where we explore the interesting paths people take in life. If you'd like to support episodes like this being made, I would appreciate it so much if you checked out the show's Patreon page at patreon.com slash halfhourintern. In today's episode, we speak again with Dr. Patricia Zarita Ona, who is a psychologist out of Walnut Creek, California. Um, Today, we cover OCD. So obsessive compulsive disorder, I'm sure you all have heard of it. You've seen it on TV and media, movies. Um, Perhaps you're listening and you have OCD, in which case this uh, should be a really, really interesting and and helpful, helpful interview for you. Um, But for the rest of you that don't have OCD, if you have any sort of anxiety um, or honestly like self-esteem issues, weird thoughts sometimes, like I I felt this interview, uh, especially towards the end, just became a very like uplifting, positive interview for not thinking that you are a weird person. So hopefully everyone has a little something that they can take from this. And at the very least, you will learn quite a bit about OCD. Without further ado, here is OCD. Patricia, thanks so much for coming back on the show. Thank you so much for having me. Yeah, absolutely. So I think we should probably start out with the clinical definition of OCD. I think we all kind of know what OCD is, but if you can speak to a clinical perspective of what like you guys kind of refer to OCD as. Okay, so as you, as you know, most people know, OCD stands for obsessive compulsive disorder, and we're looking for um, we're looking for a particular thoughts, images, urges, impulses people have that are unwanted. People don't like to have them, so that's the definition of an of an obsession. It's an unwanted thought, memory, image that is kicking in, okay. and. Because comes with a lot of anxiety, discomfort, and stress, people quickly engage into a response to actually minimize and neutralize the anxiety. That's a compulsion. Okay. Or they go into an avoidance mode, right? So usually what you have is like a marriage. You have an unwanted thought that it doesn't make sense. It's so inconsistent with what I really want. But because it comes with a lot of anxiety and a struggle, I have to do something in the moment to reduce my anxiety. And we call that behavior a compulsion. So they have to be these two things together for us to talk about OCD. Okay, cool. So O, the obsessive thought that you're having. C, the compulsive act after you have had the thought. Right, right. And then what is important here is the obsession is not just a thought. It could be an image. It could be an unwanted impulse, right? When sometimes clients feel like, well, but I feel like I'm going to do this, right? And I, of course, it doesn't make sense. That is also an obsession. Okay, now why is it that sometimes the the compulsions it seems like so first of all if maybe you can tell us like are there different types of OCD um but but to the question I was starting to ask is it seems like sometimes people's compulsions don't necessarily relate entirely to whatever the 
obsessive thought is. Like I'm thinking like let's say somebody has to turn on and off the tap uh, of water like 10 times. It's like how does that help whatever thought they're having or something? Like I could see cleaning your hands 10 times because it's like, okay, I need to get rid of the germs. I don't see turning on and off the faucet 10 times. Like unless I guess maybe your thought was I have a leaky faucet or something like that. Um, But so like, what are like different types of OCD and does the compulsion always directly tie in to the thoughts and images or sometimes is a little bit like irrelated? Okay, so that's a really, really great question, right? In terms of the different types of OCD, OCD is OCD. We do talk clinically about different types of OCD just because of the theme, right? Like, for example, we talk about harm obsessions. We talk about gay OCD. We talk about sexual OCD. We talk about uh, contamination OCD. But it's only because of the theme of the intrusive thoughts that are kicking in for a person, right? So there, so I think we do have like maybe 15, six different types, but it's only because the theme, they are connected in terms of the intuitions. Does, does this make sense? Yeah, so it's really all basically just one broad umbrella of OCD, but you as clinicians have chosen to kind of like sub-label some of them just for, for ease of talking about it. That's right. And that's what, you know, sometimes people understand that as different uh, subtypes, but there's basically one single umbrella, as you say, and then we classify them versus based on that theme that they are related to. Um, and then the other question you have, that is a really, really great question. Do all compulsions relate to the obsession? Not necessarily. Actually, the media has done, I think, a job presenting that OCD is only about fears of contamination. And they show you people or they share stories about people who is checking multiple times um, a door handle or they are using wipes. Right. But that's, you know, OCD is so much more than that. For example, if a person has fears of contamination, they also can be doing some of these, what we call mental compulsions. Um, they may, may be repeating to themselves specific numbers like 27, 29, uh, or they start singing to themselves, or they're going into reassurance uh, by themselves, right? So not, not all compulsions are directly related to these obsessions of fears. What happens is that when the obsession comes, let's say there is a fear about having brain damage, in the moment that obsession comes with a lot of anxiety, a lot of discomfort, that people do everything they can to reduce that anxiety. And in the moment, sometimes they found themselves tapping both shoulders, for example, right? Or they start touching the wrist. It doesn't make sense. But in the moment, that behavior uh, reduces the anxiety that was initially associated with this fear of contracting an illness, right? Mm. So because of that, because it works once, people start doing it over and over, and that's how OCD gets maintained. Mm-hmm. It's like the way people have superstitions about like a lucky rabbit's foot or something like that. It's like, oh, that one time I had a great basketball game, like I have my lucky rabbit's foot, so I need to have it every game from now on. Uh, like a similar sort of thing. Like that one time I was anxious and I tapped my shoulder, I calmed down. So I'm going to tap my shoulder for the rest of my life. That's right. So when people ask us, you know, why do I keep having OCD? It wasn't like this before. It's because the moment when you start engaging in a compulsive behavior, if it's an overt behavior that people can see, like touching, using materials, or an, a covert behavior, a covert compulsion, like telling yourself it's going to be okay, or you're going to pray, or you're going to singing, just that time is strong enough that you will keep doing the same behavior over and over. So then again, you have a loop that gets established and people learn to respond to that every time they have an obsession showing up for them. 
Okay. Okay. So I would love to know how you guys are able to draw a line between what and what is not OCD. You you brought up a good point that in um, the media and uh, on like shows and movies and stuff, they often show people with just like a need to wash their hands a lot or like use clean wipes or, you know, whatever it is. Like my grandma has to use clean wipes all the time. You know what I'm saying? Like she's like a <laughs> super clean person. So how do you draw the line between what is actually OCD behavior and what is just this person is super neat and tidy. Yeah, that's a really great question. So I appreciate your thinking about it, Blake. So sometimes, again, we think that because people do the things over and over, that's OCD. It's not. A repetitive behavior or uh, excessive focus on a particular topic or theme is not OCD also. So when we think about OCD, we're thinking uh, about something that is really unwanted, People who are struggling with OCD don't like to have particular types of thoughts. They don't like to have images about harming a person they love. They don't like to have images about contracting a neurological disease. And it doesn't make sense. They don't like to have even images about hurting themselves because they want to be alive, right? So obsessions are really unwanted, Mm. uh, undesired thoughts, images, impulses that show up for people. Um, And... The response to that is to engage into avoidance. I escape from the anxiety or I actually go into a compulsion to reduce my anxiety. So without those two components, an unwanted thought and a behavior to neutralize anxiety, it's not OCD. Interesting. So, so like if you were to talk to my grandma or a lot of other people who were just really clean, you'd be like, hey, yeah. like, do, you, do you like having your house be really clean? They'd just be like, yeah, I love it. Like, I love cleaning my house. It's great. You know, and that would be the end of story. It wouldn't be like, actually, it's like tortuous how often I have to clean my house. Like, I I hate it, but I have to do it anyways. That's right. It's exactly like that, right? Um, I tend to be organized. If people walk into my office, they will see, you know, the the, the papers are perfectly organized, right? There is vertical, horizontal. I have a system for that. It doesn't mean that that's OCD. Right? Having preferences for organization and for cleanliness, it's not OCD. OCD is only, again, you have an unwanted thought, you don't like it, it doesn't make sense, you don't like having it, and then you do something to reduce the anxiety associated with that thought. That's what OCD is. Hmm. Okay. Let's, um, so we focused on, I think, like the, the sort of clean one, just because that's the easiest one maybe to talk about and the one that everyone is really familiar with. Um, if you could break apart some of the other sorts of OCD that you see? Obviously, you said there's like 15 or 16 major categories, so we can't really go through all of them, but maybe some of the more common ones that you see in sort of the different forms that OCD can take. Yeah, absolutely. I actually appreciate talking about it because the construct idea of what the media, the media has presented about OCD being only about contamination obsessions. So we do have, you know, clients struggling with aggressive obsessions. For example, um, we have been working with women who, after delivering a baby, they have postpartum OCD. They have an image about harming the baby, or they have an image about dropping the baby or drowning the baby. So they're really scared about being with the baby, but they love their kids. They absolutely love their kids. But because of OCD, this particular type is called aggressive obsessions. Uh, they cannot spend time with a baby, right? Hmm. So that is a very uh, particular type of OCD on that sense that comes with a lot of shame. People don't talk too much about it. It's scary, right? 
But it, it really could be a form of OCD if people are struggling with these unwanted images of harming someone or harming themselves. Whether it's the postpartum version or any sort of version of, of harming yourself or others, what are the compulsions that come with that usually? Yeah, or well, is it so- like across the board? Who knows? Well, that's an interesting question. For example, I had a client of mine that once watched a TV, a scary movie. Um, and then the next day, you know, because he had this nightmare that he stabbed his family, he called the family and he told them they were in danger, right? That they just actually have to get out of the house and they have to place him in a facility. Um, so, of course, the family didn't understand what was going on. But then throughout the day, my client started making sure uh, that he was leaving the house three times to the front door so he could protect the family from him harming them. Mm. The compulsion didn't make sense. But for him, when he was going out of the house through the door three times, it was reducing his anxiety, right? So you will see compulsions like that. Uh, You see a lot of avoidance behaviors. People don't want to spend time uh, with the people that they think they are going to harm. So they rather just to leave the house. Or you may see people engaging into compulsive um, praying, for example, or telling themselves it's going to be okay. It's going to be okay. Um, Or, for example, women with postpartum OCD, they are so afraid about harming the baby you will see them carrying a mirror and they're you know placing the mirror next to the baby making sure the baby's breathing so just to reduce their anxiety about the possibility of harming the baby Hmm, interesting for the compulsions do they have to occur multiple times for it to be a compulsion like you mentioned like and i think that's the way that we all think about them like okay i walk out the front door three times i lock the door 12 times i wash my hands 45 times uh, if you, if it's just every time I have a thought that I am going to kill my wife, I leave the house period. I just leave. Um, and if you ask me like, do you want to leave the house? Well, no, but I like, I got to get out of here because I'm having this thought. Um, is that like, would that be considered a compulsion? Me just leaving the house in general, just because it's not something that I necessarily want to be doing, but I'm doing it because of the obsession that I have. Yes, yes. So a compulsion is not defined by how many times people engage in that behavior. It's about the function of that behavior. If the function of that behavior is to reduce anxiety, that's enough to say that that's a compulsion. Regardless, people do it one time or they do it multiple times, right? Okay. So sometimes when people do it multiple times, they they develop what we call this ritualistic behavior, right? Uh, For example, I had another client with fears of contamination with um, cleaning products, right? So my client, to make sure that he didn't get contaminated, he used to wash his hands for three minutes and repeat this three to four times. And then he washed hands between 50 seconds to two minutes, uh, rinse again wash the face for 15 seconds, rinse again, wash the face again for another 15 seconds. So that was a more ritualized behavior. But even if he will have washed his hands only once, that's enough for us to say that it's a compulsion because it was in response to these fears of contamination. Mm, interesting. Man, what a um, what an interesting thing OCD is. It, it strikes me that, that all of us pretty much have... Uh, compulsions that we act out sometimes like under cer- certain circumstances but just not that mm-hmm. frequently and all of us probably have obsessive thoughts around certain things every now and then but again it's not a, like super regular but they don't get combined and so we don't have ocd like i'm picturing if you were someone that let's say whenever you were sad you comforted yourself by eating ice cream 
you know, and then you were <laughs> overweight and people asked you like, well, do you like eating the ice cream? Well, like, no, not really. Like, I don't think I should eat the ice cream, but like, it just makes me feel good. You know, it's like, well, that's a compulsion because you don't think you should do it, but you're doing it anyways because it's comforting to you, but there's no obsessive aspect of it, you know, and it's just like it crops up every now and then. And again, like there's other thoughts that we could have that are obsessive. And it's like that. then there's this fine line, though, for these people to have OCD where all these things occur at the same time for them. Yeah. So one of the things that it's helpful to distinguish here is that if I'm feeling down and I decide to go for ice cream or for frozen yogurt, for example, because that's what I usually do. Right. That's more like a coping response to a particular emotion. Right. Uh, But with OCD, what you have. People have unwanted thoughts. It doesn't make sense. They don't want to have it. It's totally against who they are in the world. For example, some people have suicidal OCD. And basically, it means that they think they are going to commit suicide. But they love life. They have a good life. Things are, you know, going well in their lives. But they have this image that somehow they are going to die in a car accident. Or they, by accident, they're going to drink something that is going to kill them, right? So because of that image, that unwanted thought, they start developing a compulsive behaviors or avoidance responses. But the difference here is that that obsession, they don't like to have it. It just it doesn't make sense. It's against their personal history. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Which in the other cases, if I'm feeling down, if I'm feeling angry and I decide to go for frozen yogurt or I decide to go for a scotch, that's just more more coping responses to my struggle, but not necessarily a compulsion. Right, 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 right. Okay. So that's one of the differences. Yeah. So, yeah, that's kind of that's kind of an interesting line between a compulsion or or a coping response. Um. Because to me, it's a little bit like, well, you're, they're both something that you, nece- you, sh- you maybe like, you know, that you shouldn't be doing sort of thing. Um, and you're doing it to help you get through something that you don't that, like through a feeling that you're not enjoying right now. Um, yes. But I guess the, the compulsion is a more like aggressive form of a coping mechanism. It's more aggressive. And the other difference is that when I have, you know, I I hear what you're saying, that if I have a feeling that I don't like to have it, like feeling down, feeling lonely, uh, being afraid about being abandoned, and I cope with those feelings, that's one particular situation, right? But with OCD, these thoughts, when people experience them, it's like having a house on fire. It just it doesn't make sense. It's really inconsistent with who they are as people, right? Uh, and it's really, really anxiety-provoking. Like, they don't like to have it. Right. Uh, for the, example, the urge to do the compulsion is, like, absolutely overwhelming. Like, they, like, have to do it. That's right. It's really like house on fire, right? So if there will, it will be easier for them to stop a behavior, they will do it. But because that, the thought, that image, or the urge is so strong, it's really challenging to stop it. Mm. It's really hard. And that's why we have a specific, I think, treatments that we know they work to help them to handle OCD. Um, you know, if you have a client that has a scrupulosity OCD, for example, there is this excessive fear with sacrilege and blasphemy, right? And they're very concerned with what's right, what's wrong and moral issues. It looks pretty benign on the outside. But what people don't know is that for them, it's a really, really intense experience, no knowing whether they are doing the right thing or not, whether they're following, you know, specific rules or behaviors or not. Uh, so that's another type of OCD that actually it goes undiagnosed many times if people have religious beliefs. Ah, man, that's brutal. So how do you, um, like, I guess, hope to treat people like this? Like the example that you just gave, it just made me think of like, 
what a brutal existence it would be for someone like that because just leaving the house would be difficult. Like if I if I'm so worried about things being really proper and sanctified, it's like if there's just a a girl in yoga pants or something, I'm going to be like, oh my god, the world is ending. Like this is awful, you know. And like, I, I do you have to treat people with uh just like i guess a bunch of anti-anxiety medication or, or how do you help well that's a great question right the most effective treatment we have found for ocd is called exposure response prevention it's erp uh which i don't know how familiar you are or your listeners with exposure response prevention but it's a frontline treatment for ocd and all anxiety problems uh it basically means that we help people to face some of these thoughts images or situations that are scared about, right? And you can do that. You can do a situational exposure when you go to a particular setting that a client is scared of, or you can do what we call imaginal exposure when we write a script about the worst consequence of their fear, or we can do even that somatic exposure when we actually trigger some of these bodily sensations for clients so they can get used to them, right? Mm. Um, for example, a client of mine that was uh, that had this excessive concern with environmental um, products, right? And he didn't want to touch any household cleaners, right? Like Clorox, Wipeout, you name it. So part of the exposure actually was to spray some of these cleaners into a tissue paper and touch it back and forth and then touch the walls with the tissue paper. And then later on, he will going to touch directly the wall with his hands without any paper between him and the wall that had this cleaning product on it, right? So that's an example of how we do this exposure response prevention work preparing clients to face it because of course it's really difficult for them so facing it at a starting facing it at a low level and, and in a space where they feel safe and like that there's someone else there to make sure that everything's going to be okay yeah so usually what we do when we have a client who is struggling with ocd we do a throat inventory of the most common obsessions the most common compulsions they are dealing with right and then we also want to understand, you know, how much people are making accommodations, right? Because usually either parents of teens or children or significant others are making accommodations for people. Um, for example, a client of mine who struggled with fears of harming the baby after, you know, she was struggling with postpartum OCD, she didn't want to give a bath to the baby. So every time there was bathing time, she was asking her husband or her mother or her in-laws to do it. And she never wanted to be by herself with a baby. So then part of the treatment is to do some psychoeducation with significant others so they can stop all these accommodations, right? Mm -hmm. uh, so we also do that. And then with clients, we develop what is called an exposure menu or an exposure hierarchy, where we basically have an inventory of all these triggering situations, uh, the most common obsessions, the most common compulsions. And then we agree with clients in a very collaborative conversation where we're going to start. So every session with a client comes, we ask them, okay, so how much are you willing to get out of the comfort zone and face this fear? And the client says, well, you know, I'm willing to work on these, I don't know, like these checking compulsions. And we say, okay, so let's do that. Then we create a situation for that, right? So it's never a surprise exposure for clients. It's always collaborating with clients as a team and coming up together the order in which they're going to be facing these fears. Okay, interesting. Typically, is this used at the same time as medication or do you try to treat this without medication at all? 
That's an interesting question. It really depends on the case, right? Uh, what we know is that some people dealing with OCD, they also have some um, dopamine problems, and some of them, they may need some medication, not all of them. I can tell you in my humble experience, I have certainly treated people with dealing with OCD, and we did intensive exposure response prevention treatments. They were coming eight to 10 hours a week and doing um, exposures for every, every particular fear they had without medication and the outcome was very successful. There were other cases in which after one month or six weeks of treatment, there wasn't an improvement in terms of the compulsive behaviors. So then we have to request some addition of medi um, medi medication for the successful of the treatment. Yeah, yeah. Is there an age that this typically sets in and starts or does OCD start anytime? That's an interesting question. It could start at any time, right? We do have cases in which they experience OCD symptoms since they were very young as children. And we do have people that develop OCD in their adult life. Again, imagine is that sometimes in life we go through experiences that they seem like regular things for us, right? Uh, but for some people, they have this, this sensitivity to these situations. And then because of that experience, they develop an obsession and there is a compulsion reducing the anxiety. So even if you didn't struggle with OCD as a kid, you could, you know, develop this presentation as an adult. Okay. And then when you have OCD, do most people have multiple symptoms or are most people like single symptoms? So let's say you had OCD, um, like multiple symptom would be, okay, I have to wash my hands 10 times because I'm worried about germs. I have to lock my door 25 times because I'm worried about someone breaking in. I have to keep myself away from my baby because I'm worried I'm going to kill my baby. And I have to like touch my doorknob 15 times before I open it. Like, is it like somebody presents with multiple, like they act out their OCD in multiple ways? Is that more common or is it more common for someone to have a single source of OCD, like just one symptom? Yeah, that's a very interesting question, right? Some people have a single particular type of OCD, like some people have the obsession uh, with the need for symmetry or exactness, right? Uh, some people sometimes have multiple types of obsessions, sexual obsessions, religious obsessions, uh, fears of contamination, counting compulsions. If you ask me why, it's because I think the challenge is that because OCD, again, these obsessions come with such a high level of discomfort, like houses on fire, that people will do everything they can to reduce the anxiety. Mm -hmm. The challenge is that the moment when they go into this compulsive behavior or they avoid that situation, the OCD gets established. And then it doesn't take too long for this fear and this response to get generalized to other areas and other settings, right? And that's when you have like OCD basically spreading and developing um, different subtypes of OCD. Yeah, I mean, it only makes sense that if you found a compulsion to help with one sort of negative thought that you had, that you would start using compulsions for all different sorts of things like that. That just makes sense to me. Yeah, yeah, and that's that's one of the hardest things for us, right? So OCD, you know, in the in the in the country is basically the fourth most common psychiatric disorder, right? Wow. 
and actually is the 10th leading cause of disability in all the world. So it's actually pretty severe. Um, and what is very sad is that people usually don't ask for help right away. When people are struggling with panic attacks or social anxiety, it takes usually one to two years to go into therapy. But clients struggling with OCD, it usually takes like six to seven years to ask for help. Um, because there is a lot of shame, there is a lot of embarrassment, right? Uh, and again, imagine if you're having some sexual obsessions. Imagine if you're afraid about harming the people you love. That's not something you're going to share, you know, freely with everyone, oh, right? Oh, God, totally, yeah. So you're trying to keep it to yourself, which actually perpetuates more the OCD and keeps you in isolation. So it takes you longer to actually get to the right treatment. Yeah, it's, man, it's just so terrible to think about. What, like what are some of the not not to like make this really dark but what are some of the more i guess like tragic or difficult stories that you've heard in terms of like the ways that ocd will negatively impact someone's life before they come to you Mm, i think that's if i have to think about those those situations I think I would say people are struggling with aggressive obsessions, right? People that suddenly they have this image about stabbing the people they love or crushing the car so and the children will be dead, right? Um, I think, and then women with postpartum OCD that they were so afraid about harming their babies, right? Um, I think those, those, those subtypes of OCD come with a lot of shame come with a lot of embarrassment some of the the clients i work with they couldn't even share this with your partners because they were really afraid about the response they couldn't talk to their doctors about what was going on right mm-hmm. uh, and certainly in therapy it takes a little bit of you know courage to actually say this for what it is right so i will say that people are struggling with these fears about harming others the people they care uh, and fears about harming themselves hmm. Okay. Those can be very, very paralyzing and very hidden, very hidden. Yeah, I, yeah, it's got to be so hard. And like you said, just, you know, provoke so much shame and everything, which is, is so difficult. Um, let's talk a little bit about the intersection of anxiety and OCD, which makes me think of our last episode together where we talked about emotional regulation. So it sounds like OCD is, is kind of like the next tier up from anxiety. Like you start out with anxiety, your anxiety gets really severe. And then at some point you work on some, you know, it becomes obsessive. You, you have some compulsions to deal with the obsessions that, that all sparked from this anxiety that you had, which brings me to one of the later questions that I asked you during the emotional regulation episode, which is if someone starts with emotional regulation early and often, could it potentially uh, prevent a more severe psychotic problem from forming down the line. It makes me think like if you, if anxiety is kind of like the, the parent for OCD, if, if when you started having anxiety to begin with, if you just worked really, really, really hard at emotional regulation, um, is it something that could kind of prevent or, or stave off OCD to a certain extent? Yeah, I think it definitely if people are struggling with emotional sensitivity, they are super feelers and they learn some of these emotional regulation skills, it's definitely going to help them to be more skillful in terms of handling not just anxiety, but also other other types of emotions, right? Like sadness, loneliness, fear about making mistakes, right? So that is definitely going to be helpful, right? Now, OCD and emotional dysregulation 
um, they are different because with OCD, primarily you have this very unwanted thought. It doesn't make sense. Um, people feel that this thought or this, this image is actually against their own personal identity versus with emotional dysregulation, although people have intense emotions, right? They are justified. They do make sense. And mm. that's who they are. So it's a very different, I, I think, presentation. Yes. Yeah. Good point. So, all right. That brings me to the next question, which is if like, so we recently had an episode of the podcast on schizophrenia and schizophrenia mm-hmm. is uh, a, there is a genetic component to it. B, um, there is probably like epigenetic components to it. C, there is actual like physical changes in the brain that happens and that that, that can be observed in someone with schizophrenia. Um, Is OCD a a chemical imbalance? Is there any sort of physical difference in the brain? Is there a genetic component to OCD? Like talk about some of the science behind it. Okay. Okay. So it's pretty interesting. These days, we're very fortunate to have research looking at brain function and brain structure for OCD. Um, It seems that OCD could be related to a decrease in the great mother. Uh, Basically, that means that there are fewer cells and nerve fibers that make up the brain tissues, right? Especially in the medial frontal lobe. Um, the area where we do have a lot of executive functioning and regulation of our behaviors, right? So it seems that there is a decrease again in terms of great mother in that particular area, right? Um, so the other area of the brain known as the thalamus, um, it's responsible for storing information about the body. And it seems that that particular area and the amygdala and the limbic system also could be compromised when we're thinking about OCD, primarily because it's going to be hyperactive. So it means that it's going to be turning on too quick, right? Mm. Um, those are the two areas that come to my mind when we're thinking about brain functioning um, that have been researched and very well established when we're thinking about OCD. So we do believe that there is a physiological component to it. So if, or a physical component to it even. So like if that that is the difference between just a person that has anxiety and a person whose anxiety blossoms into OCD is that they were like genetically or physically predisposed to have the OCD happen to them. Yeah. So one of the things, yeah, that that's actually a really good point, right? What we have learned is that um, the risk of OCD is basically higher when a first degree relative has OCD. So for example, if my mom has OCD, right, the likelihood of me developing OCD is higher versus my mom not having OCD, right? So we do know that there is some genetic component to OCD. Man, so interesting. Um, it is it is very interesting. I think what is really hard for me as a clinician is that, again, when people are struggling with panic attacks, with um, chronic worry, uh, with shyness or introversion, they actually ask, they ask for help quickly than a person with OCD. Um, there is so much, so many people with undiagnosed OCD that they come to therapy when the OCD has generalized to multiple areas in their life and they're really stuck there. Mm, Yeah, for sure. Is there an OCD uh, or like, I guess, what are some of the characteristics that you've seen when people come to you that make somebody easier to help as opposed to more difficult? Like what makes things go more smoothly when a patient sees you with OCD? 
willingness to get help is usually a good indicator about how the treatment outcome is going to be. Um, when people acknowledge that it's a struggle, sometimes they know it's OCD, sometimes they don't know, but there is this willingness to get out of their comfort zone and to get better, right? Uh, in terms of whether a person that has a subparticular type, subtype of OCD only, like fields of contamination versus multiple subtypes, we know that if we do this treatment again that is called exposure response prevention ERP, people are going to get better. Regardless, it's a single type of OCD or it's a complex case with multiple areas or subtypes of OCD. We have been able to help many people. We just want them to come to therapy as quick as possible. Yeah. When you're doing the exposure response, if somebody has multiple types, do you have to do exposure response for each different type that they have? Or does like does doing one of them sort of help out the other ones? That's a great question. So generally in treatment, we do exposure to all of them. If the client has fear, I don't know, aggressive obsessions, sexual obsessions, contamination obsessions, somatic obsessions, we do exposure to all of them. But what happens in the process of exposure is the clients learn that a thought is a thought. It's not going to harm them. An emotion is an emotion. An urge is an urge. An impulse is an impulse. In the exposure, they start learning that, and therefore there is what we call this generalization of the learning, right? The more that we do exposures, the more they are learning a new experience about how to relate to these unwanted thoughts or images. So then you see that new learning actually that gets generalized to other areas of the OCD or subtypes of OCD. Can the exposure ever be too intense for the person? Have you ever seen where you expose the person to something and it's just like they, they, they flip out, they can't handle it? Yes, yes, yes. You know, sometimes it happens in the work that we are doing, right? That, uh, again, what is very important with developing treatment is to always prepare the client, to always work as a team with the client, no surprises. With all my clients, we always talk about exactly how the exposure is going to look like. They are in charge. I am not. They are the ones who are choosing the pace they are going to be moving at in the exposure menu that we have. And of course, sometimes there is a lot of, I think, intensity that comes with facing what they are scared of, mm-hmm, right? Of and there is also this natural, natural urge to get out of the exposure, bolt the therapy room, right, and never come back to treatment, right? Uh, But when those things happen, the best thing that we can do and that we do this with our clients is to ask, okay, so it seems that touching the wall with both hands is too much right now. What's the one thing that you will be willing to do to get out of the comfort zone? If that goal is too high right now, can we just reduce it a little bit? Can we still try to get out of the comfort zone? So give people a choice to actually reduce still some of these compulsive behaviors they have at the pace that they're willing to go. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So, and not to be, uh, I don't know, too like off color or, or weird here, but so it just, <laughs> it makes me think of a, um, an episode of a podcast called Invisibilia that I listened to um, yeah. where this, this man started having obsessive thoughts about harming his wife um, <laughs> and his daughter and he these obsessions got so bad and he started um like you said like avoiding his wife and his daughter and telling them that they weren't safe around him and he went to all these different types of therapy and therapists and the one that ended up really really helping was like an extreme exposure uh type of therapist i guess like what this therapist any specific this therapist specifically helps people that have problems like thoughts of harming people and this therapist had sharpened knives like 
like yeah. razor sharp knives and had the had the patient hold the knife to his uh, his throat like so the the patient that has obsessions that i think i'm going to hurt someone he has the yeah. person hold the knife to his the like the therapist's throat and just says see you're not going to kill me you're not going to kill me like it's not going to happen so first of all that sounds crazy to me. If I'm that therapist, I'm terrified. Like, what if this person does freaking kill me right now? Like, I don't know if this person's going to kill me or not. But uh, I guess if you could maybe give an example on the sexual side of things, like how do you help someone with that? If, if they have a sexual compulsion of some sort, that's not, you know, like the, the example that you gave of like, you know, being afraid of some, some cleaners or something is, is very simple and, and clear cut. But if it's like yeah. a man and he's afraid, like if I see women, I think I'm going to rape them or something. It's like, you're a woman, you know, like how, like how do you handle something like that? <laughs> That's a great question, actually. I love Invisibilia, by the way. That's a great podcast. Yeah, totally. Uh, they are doing good job as much as you are doing. So kudos to both of you. Yeah, thank you. <laughs> um, I actually want to share that. In the last nine, 10 years, I had many exposure sessions with clients holding knives, you know, on my neck, on my arm, on my leg, holding hammers. I have clients sitting, you know, if they have these aggressive obsessions uh, towards their children, you know, in, in that session, we have the kids sitting next to my client. And on the other side, we have a knife. I have couples sitting with a knife between them. So it is too much wow. exposure. It's a very intense work. But when you prepare your clients to do it and they're in charge of the treatment, they do get better regardless what's the obsession. Yeah. So that's what I was. So just to everything you just said, if, if any of that sounds weird to people who are listening that didn't listen to that full invis- invisibilia episode or anything like that, that guy. And as you just said um, about your, your patients, like that guy had this problem for years and years and years. And he's he, for years, he saw all different types of therapists doing all different sorts of things. And that was the trick holding the knife to the dude's throat like it worked and all of a sudden he he's like a happy man again and he has a happy marriage and a happy life with his daughter and he can be normal around them so um clearly there's something to it you know yeah that's exactly because when people have these unwanted thoughts like these fears about harming someone or the image they are just thoughts they are just feelings it's just mind noise it's just body noise it's just emotional noise it doesn't mean that it's true Yes. Right? Yes. So that's the difference. In terms of answering to the second question you have about sexual obsessions, um, there was, this is years ago, I worked with a priest. Uh, the priest was very concerned when he was looking at a woman's breast, he was actually committing blasphemy against God, right? So the compulsion was actually praying for days, hours and hours. He totally dropped any other activities because he was engaging in this compulsive behavior to make sure that he wasn't doing anything against God, right? Um, so part of the team was actually looking at women's breasts, all types of breasts, big breasts, small breasts, you name it, right? We have to actually go out of the office and do these exposures in the street, right? Um and again, help this person to develop a new learning towards this obsession, this fear, right? What a, what a convoluted one, though, because that's also actually rooted in religion. That's <laughs> you right, know, that's it's right. like this guy has the Bible that he's trying to hold himself to. I mean, there's a lot of weird things in the Bible. You know, if you're reading it word for word and like letter for letter, and it's like, I mean, he's probably doing exactly what he sh- that compulsion of praying all day. It's like, that's probably what he should be doing for looking at women's breasts. I don't know. But, uh, that's right. That's right. So what we actually did was um, in terms of that compulsion, the exposure was exposure, right? The exposure was helping this person to actually know these different types of women's breasts. The compulsion 
you know, he, as a priest, of course, he needs to pray. But it was the function and the context in which he was praying that we need to reduce, right? It is very different that it was different for him that he needs to pray as part of the um, service that he's he's trying to do versus praying because he has committed a sin against God by looking at a woman's breast. So it's helping him to distinguish the function of praying, right? That was actually a key factor for this treatment to succeed. Right, right, right. Again, he's not necessarily praying because he wants to. He's praying because he feels like he absolutely has to. That's right. That's right. So one of the things that happens with OCD, and that's why it's, it's beautiful to be doing exposure work, is that in complex cases like this, this is not about questioning the belief systems people have. It's looking at how it's working in the moment with the obsession or this unwanted thought is kicking in for them, right? That's the challenge. So other treatments, you know, people have tried to treat OCD with eye movement desensitization technique, EMDR, for example. It's not a frontline treatment. It's not going to work. People have tried to treat OCD with, um, I don't know, relaxation and stress responses, it's not going to work. We know very clearly the most effective treatment is exposure response prevention, that you have to help people to face these fears, mm -hmm. right? In facing these fears, a new learning happens. We don't have to question, you know, their beliefs. We don't have to tell people that's wrong, that's right. We just have to look at, okay, when this intrusive fear comes about uh, harming God or doing something against God, what do you do? And is that an effective behavior or not? Um, so that's something to think about, right? That it's the, the workability of the behavior, this compulsive response, that that's what keeps people paralyzing when dealing with OCD. It's so important and healthy for all of us to detach ourselves from our thoughts. Like it's, it's just a very empowering, nice thing to remember that, that your brain and your thoughts aren't you, you know, and it's, it's like... The, the, your your thoughts are are going a mile a minute at any given time thinking all these different things and you're not controlling that you know like i mean if you can if you think you can control your thoughts then just stop thinking right now you know like you can't your thoughts are just going to keep keep going and keep doing their own thing and if if every time you're walking down the street if you're a woman and you see a good looking guy and you think man like it'd be great to see that guy with his clothes off just re really quickly you think that to yourself and you happen to be a married woman you don't have to like chastise yourself like oh my god i'm going to cheat on my husband like what's wrong with me it's like it's just a thought you know like it's not it's not you that thought is not you it's oh, it's okay and you didn't even necessarily control that thought coming into your head like there's there's thousands of thoughts that come into your head every day without you necessarily quote unquote thinking them, um, and yet somehow when we have a negative thought that we don't or a thought that we don't like or a thought that we don't think is appropriate, we kind of feel like we must have been the genesis of that. You know, like I must have been the one that thought about killing my daughter and wife. Like there must be something in me that's making me think that. And the answer is like. No, like there's there's nothing in you making you think that. It's just weird freaking thoughts, man. That's right. That's right. I very much appreciate what you just shared in this moment. I think in the past, we have been socialized to actually believe every single thought that comes into our minds, right? It was Descartes who say, I think, then I exist, right? So we actually create this huge expectation about the ways that we think. But we know that, as you are saying, that there are, you know, more than 4,000 types of thoughts and images that come through our mind on a daily basis. Is it really possible that every single thought or image is absolute truth 
quite unlikely, right? At the end, it's just mind noise. It's coming and going constantly. There is this ongoing chit-chatting that our mind is having in its own. And you're right, we don't have control of that. The only thing that we have control is our response to it. The response to this unwanted thought, the response to this unwanted feeling, right? That's when we actually can exercise a more effective behavior. Mm-hmm. Amen to that. Um, <laughs> all right, let's let's uh, let's finish this thing up, Patricia. If we could give some advice for people with, um, with OCD or, you know, I'm sure not a lot of people listening have OCD or maybe they do. I, I don't know. Um, so it, let's maybe broaden it out a little bit more generally to just a- any sort of anxiety issues at all. Yeah, yeah, I really appreciate that question because I think that we have to do a better job disseminating that there are treatments for people to get better if you are if people are struggling with OCD. Um, I think my main um, recommendation for the listeners today is that if you have any of these really unusual, unwanted thoughts, impulses that are really uncomfortable for you, but very uncomfortable, or you know someone who is struggling with them, please keep in mind that there is a treatment that can help you to get better. You don't have to be doing this alone. I will highly recommend that you search for a therapist who is specialized in exposure response prevention. It works. The science has been very consistent on the outcomes of doing ERP, and you don't have to be dealing with OCD all your life. Yeah, that's got to be nice for someone with uh with OCD to to think about. I I could only imagine because I think that for a long time people have probably just thought like this this is it. This is how my life is. Yeah, and what we know that it's not right. We have been able these days to help many people struggling with OCD since you know five year old children to fifty year old adults and even older, right? But what is important is that we know that takes a lot of time for people to ask for help. So if there is something I highly recommend is that, again, if you are dealing with any of these unwanted thoughts that really don't make sense, or you know someone who is suffering because of them, there is a treatment that could be helpful to them. Mm-hmm. Amen. And that treatment is just knowing that you're not a weirdo. Just know that That's it's right. totally cool to have those thoughts, which is just great advice for anyone to have. Just don't think you're a weirdo. It's all good. Whatever you're thinking, it's all good. That's right. That's the biggest thing, right? This is just a thought. Yeah. Love it. Patricia, this has been so great. Thank you for doing this interview. Thank you for the last interview. This week has been awesome and informative and uh, we really appreciate it. Thank you. Well, Blake, I just want to say thank you so much to you for the invitation. And I really, really appreciate all the work you're doing, just sharing with the listeners really, really interesting material. So thank you so much for having me and congratulations on the podcast you have. It's a really cool project. Thank you so much. I appreciate it. Hey, everyone, it's Blake. I hope you all enjoyed the episode. If you did, I would appreciate it so much if you considered leaving a review for the show on iTunes. I swear it'll only take like two minutes. Um, Just search for the show on iTunes, click on it, click on ratings and reviews. You can leave a quick review um, or just uh, keep listening to the show. I appreciate that as well. Or tell a friend about the show or something. And if you have any ideas for the show, if you have a particular job or hobby that you would like to hear interviewed on the show, if you yourself think that you do something interview worthy and you would like to tell the world about what this job or hobby is that you have, head on over to halfhourintern.com. There's a link right there at the top that says submit your ideas and you could submit your ideas for the show, be them uh, somebody else that you would like me to interview, a particular field that you would like to hear about, or even if it is you yourself that would like to come on the show. Thanks so much for listening, you guys.